Because I've spotlighted you for the recording, Peg. So if you want oh, him to put you back in gallery view, he could do that if you. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You'll see when you're talking with people online. Oh, that's, better. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I was thinking about this. This is really historic. This is the first time we've done inquiry in this hybrid format. So it's so wonderful to have people in this window and also be able to include all of you far, far away. And I'm so glad that you're with us. So, and I was thinking about when I was about in third or fourth grade, we were called into an assembly from class. We're in the assembly and they, asked, they instructed us to look under our seats. And we pulled out this cardboard construction, which was a piece of cardboard with numbers on it and another piece of cardboard stuck to it that had circles cut out of it. They were going to teach us how to use a dial phone. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> and, uh, before that, you picked up the receiver and you asked the operator for the number that you wanted to get, right? And she plugged it in. <laughs> So I was thinking about, first of all, how far we've come, but also how that technology, how quickly that technology became completely familiar to us. Nobody had to be taught after that ever to use a dial phone. Um, and it, these technologies also that allow us to communicate and be close to each other, even though we're far away, um, in the beginning felt so alien and so strange and, uh, and so difficult to set up and do, you know, um, and now we're just sort of at home in it. It's another environment that we can connect and communicate with and be close together, even though there's all this distance. So I'm really grateful and I'm very, very grateful to Kim and Maria for setting things up so well so that we can actually do this and, uh, and make it work because it's non-trivial, you know, to make uh, these, all these pieces come together and work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Um, yeah. So, um, I, this is a little bit of a departure for inquiry for me anyway, um, because I want to talk about uh, this process we've been engaged in uh, of Dharma transmission and Jukai and so forth. So, so recently, as many of you know, we've completed Flint's Dharma transmission and the Bodhisattva initiation ceremony, formally receiving the Buddhist precepts for John Miller and Anne McReady, a ceremony called Jukai in the Japanese Zen tradition. These two ceremonies are parallel and intimately connected. You formally take the precepts once again if you ordain as a priest, and you formally take them, receive them again um, when you do Dharma transmission. 
And the difference being that when you receive them in Dharma transmission, you're now authorized to give them for, to others. So, um, so they officially connect us directly into the bloodline of the Zen ancestors going all the way back to the Buddha. And there's a document that literally has a red line that connects all those ancestors right down to your own name. Every culture faces the prof very profound question of how wisdom and knowledge acquired in previous generations can be preserved and conveyed forward to future generations. So we have schools, right? That's part of how we do that. <clears throat> in earlier times, it would be transmitted in the context of use, hands-on, by a father, a mother, or an elder. Here's where you find mushrooms. Here's how you bait a hook. Here's how you weave cloth. There are stories, lore, and songs passed down through the tribe or clan. <clears throat> when print emerged, it proved a wonderful medium for preserving knowledge and accessing it even when the knower was gone. So wisdom could be gathered in sacred texts and the work of the generations that followed was to understand, interpret, and apply that wisdom. Specialists evolved into priests and a whole hierarchy of roles with privileged access to wisdom. The sacred text became institutions. We're familiar with this whole process, right? With the evolution of cultures, increasing complexity, technologies, proliferation of social formations, the question of authorization arose. Right? How do we tell who's really authorized to take these roles? There's a model of apprenticeship in which people would trade their labor for education and craft work and authorization by a master. There's the model of following a curriculum of study and authorization by a teacher or an official certificate of completion, a diploma, for example. There's the model of appointment by a person empowered. Right? Someone in power can appoint you to a position. There's the model of election by some population of voters and verified by election officials, but there has to be some verification and authorization of who is uh, leg legitimate in holding some office or um, providing some skill. Our Zen way of transmitting wisdom, clarity, and illumination from the Buddha's time down to this present moment is not based on sacred texts, apprenticeship to a master, study of some academic curriculum, institutional certification, or popularity by election. The Zen model is sometimes described as direct transmission outside of words or letters. That doesn't mean that Zen repudiates books. There are probably more books written about Zen than about any other branch of Buddhism. It does not mean that there's no study involved, nothing to learn. That would be a dangerous misunderstanding. It does mean that in our tradition, Wisdom and the path of awakening are handed down warm hand to warm hand, as we say. It is in the intimacy of the karmic relationship between teacher and student, the embodied experience of shared practice, and the recognition of this path as the true path of our Zen ancestors. So we honor a lineage of Buddhist ancestors, people who have preserved and protected the Buddha's Dharma and faithfully entrusted them into our hands. These Buddhist ancestors are our parents and grandparents, and without them, we could not live in the Dharma. We would have no awareness of the Buddha nature shot through everything, nor would we have the exquisite experience of Sangha, community practicing together with shared aspiration. My gratitude to our ancestors is boundless. At least from one point of view, it seems to me that it is like there's an immense pile of stones. Some are gemstones, 
Some are just ordinary rock. Those with discerning eyes have plucked gemstones from this pile, polished them a bit, and made a hole in them to string them together. Each is different, yet each matches perfectly. And the string of gemstones forms a mala, the lineage of Buddhist ancestors. It is not a line, but a circle. Everything circles back to Buddha, to Buddha nature, which is the thread that runs through them all. And when you look closely, you see that this thread runs through the rest of the stones on the pile as well, that each is bearing it like a vein of precious ore, sometimes on the surface, sometimes deep in the heart of it. Some of those stones will lie unnoticed or unappreciated, even though there may be precious jewels within the heart of them. But for now, we must be grateful for the mala that has been cherished for centuries and handed down, as they say, warm hand to warm hand. There's enough wealth there to last this lifetime and beyond. The thread, the vein of precious ore is the Dharma. We are the caretakers of the mala and our own being continues the thread to the next generation, not in a line, but a circle that returns again and again to Buddha, the inexhaustible Dharma. So in these lineage documents, a circle starts with the Buddha, goes through all of the ancestors, comes down to you and circles back up to the Buddha from the foot to the head. This is a devotional view of the lineage. Scholars and historians may debate the facts or details of the stories as we have received them about those teachers and sages who have come to represent our lineage. These are the things that matter to scholars and historians, and they are welcome to their arguments. What they can't really see from their position is that their findings may all be true enough, and also the spiritual reality and validity of our lineage stories may also be true. They serve to inspire and encourage us, to challenge us, and to point to the great mystery. Furthermore, there are other truths, the truth of lived reality in our present age, pandemics, global warming, war in Ukraine, the truths of the longing in each person's heart for connection, the truths of the absolute heart of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, all of these truths can be quite comfortably held in that pure presence, creative intelligence, pristine awareness so beautifully expressed in Mokchimpa. So critics point out that our lineage is not historically factual, that it has been constructed from fragments of texts, stories, teachings, legends. The very fact of this lineage's constructedness merely affirms the Buddha's teachings. The lineage is empty and it contains unimaginable riches. Both are true. It is only if you are still looking for some substantial essence or permanent own being that you could possibly expect the lineage to represent something solid, eternal, fixed, rather than something marked like everything else, dependently originated, impermanent, and of course, bound up with suffering. What is the suffering? I think we suffer because we recognize the ancestors like a vast mountain range. We feel how small we are and how inadequate to the tasks ahead. The tasks of embodying the teachings in ways that honor and convey that Buddha's lineage. We feel the pain and struggle of our current age. The male. <laughs> Something starts. Yeah. Yeah. And the immense need for the Dharma, 
while we are puny and weak. We know that a single lifetime is impossibly short and that the challenges are formidable. In the face of the ancestors, we stutter and fumble, filled with shame and dread and awe. This is as it should be. We ask ourselves, who am I in relation to this thread, the lineage of ancestors and beloved teachers? That is, I suppose, what we are here to find out. If I'm unequal to this tradition, I can be confident that will be clarified on this path. If I have a contribution to make in some way to the conveying of the Dharma here in this contemporary culture with its complexities, troubles, suffering, crises, and pleasures, I always hope that will be revealed as well so that I can live my way into it. That vast creative intelligence will find its way. I am completely trusting, regardless of what that way might be. For Flint, it is in the intimacy of meeting and supporting people in making the turn toward freedom and away from suffering. If I had to guess, somehow, my gifts have to do with social architecture and expression in language. I seem to have some capacity to give words to the ineffable, to what people find inexpressible in their own experience, and to find words that can somehow support them on the path, their own path. That's my hope and aspiration, at least. The expression of the Dharma may come through me in this way. Maybe that is what is wanted. I don't know. I claim nothing as my own, and still something flows through me. I don't know what it is, but I have to give it voice. And this is the case for each one of us. So John and, uh, and Anne this, this last week, uh, receiving the precepts as a kind of gift is what the Buddha talked about as the pristine gift, step into a mystery they can't really understand except by exploring it. There's no way to understand it from outside of it. You have to be within it. And from there, the path naturally and, and um, coherently unfolds itself. And we run into various kinds of challenges on that path, but there's something that connects us to it in a way that can't really be destroyed. So um, when we think about moving into now this celebration of Flint's Dharma transmission, we can think about what that means to make that deep, deep abiding commitment um, and to know what kinds of um, lengthy practice and experience have been behind it, right? So. Uh, so when I introduce him, I'll talk a little bit more about that path, but I can tell you that for me, the opportunity to offer Dharma transmission, uh, to convey that, um, uh, I would say that level of the Dharma um, to someone else was such an immense and profound experience. Uh, just a sense of what was given to me, I was able to pass on what was what I received. And, and I have to tell you, when I long ago, when I asked Roko Osho after an, uh, a session, I said to her, so, and I'm like in my naivete, I said, so what is it exactly that gets transmitted? And she said, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> What are we doing here then? <laughs> but in a sense, that's really true. The only thing that gets transmitted is your um, your own true nature. That's the only thing that can, that can ever be really transmitted. It's just that, um, uh, I'd say that recognition or uh, uh, evolutionary step for your true nature. So what this means for Flint, and you know, years ago I said to him, I want to get transmission because I don't want our children to be bastards. <laughs> <laughs> 
By which I meant, <laughs> I wanted our students to be respected for the deep practice I knew they were engaged in. So when they went to other centers to practice or when they talked to people from other places, they'd be respected. And that when they decided you know, for themselves what their path was going to be, that it would be a path they could have confidence in, that everyone could have confidence in. And I felt like we need to have um, a kind of credibility as a center because we are doing deep practice here and deep training here and I want that recognized. So, uh, so I know it's kind of a, a raffish way to put it, but, uh, but that's how I felt about it really, you know. <laughs> I really want um, all of you to be respected in the ways that uh, really reflect the deep practice that you are engaged in and the, and the work that you've done on yourselves and the work we've done together. So. Um, and for Flint, it was the same. I mean, he has many students in the UK and all over, as you know, um, and, uh, and I want him to have that authority and that credibility um, to confer that on his students so that uh, in our tradition, uh, if you do not have Dharma transmission, you cannot formally offer the precepts to anybody. Um, so you can do our precept conclusion, you know, conclusion of the precept study program ceremony. Um, but as far as Jukai is concerned, that's only for people with Dharma transmission. So, um, so there are certain things that are restricted uh, to those who have Dharma transmission, including um, offering Dharma transmission to others and entrusting teachers. So, so I felt this was important, but it also um, establishes the center in a different way, I think, uh, and a deeper way. So I'm really looking forward to the celebration of that. It was quite a lot of ceremonies. A lot of formal ceremonies um, and uh, and hosting at my house. So it was a, a, you know, a very busy time. And now I'm sort of relaxing a little bit, enjoying Austin, enjoying, you know, having breakfast tacos and taking walks with the Sangha members and seeing people for tea. And that's quite a delight to be here and feels so, uh, so good to be back in the house. You know, and I'm looking around going, oh yeah. And then we, we decided to put in the deep soaking tub. That was a good idea. <laughs> Everywhere I look, I'm like, oh yeah, the cabinet hardware. That was a big debate, but I'm glad we went for it. Because <laughs> now, of course, I'm in a new space where I'm like, oh, the cabinets. <laughs> Something is going to be, need to be done. And I'm afraid it might have to need to be done by me. <laughs> so. Anyway, um, I, this is a joyful um, week and a joyful um, sort of on-ramp to Flint's celebration, which will be the capstone of my visit here. I'll leave the next day. Um, I'm hoping to be back in October uh, so that I can once again uh, do a Jukai ceremony for those folks who are sewing with Anne right now. I'm immensely grateful to Anne for finding a way to work with folks who are sewing and finding a way to help them even in the midst of a pandemic. Um, I, I just, I can't, words can't convey it. She went to a, a special practice period that was just for sewing teachers um, and with San Francisco Zen Center and just has worked and studied so hard um, so that she could support this practice for folks in the Sangha. So if you're inclined that way and you think you might be interested, you know, by all means, talk to Anne or talk to me. You need permission from a teacher to sew Arakasu and, uh, and formally take Jukai, but you know, we're, um, we're very enthusiastic about that. <laughs> yeah, so 
Uh, so, all right. So now I think um, it's time to turn things over to you and all of your questions, both online and in person. And we'll try and um, negotiate that way together, right? To uh, people, folks online, and folks. And if you have any questions about any of this, how this happens, how you know what the uh, kinds of things are that um, that go into this process, uh, let me know. All right. So uh, raise your hand if you're online or uh, if you're here. Well, I'm happy. It might be, but it might be best at this point, Peg, if Kim puts you back into speaker view so that you can see people that come forward clearly. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, yeah. And then you can spotlight them, right, Maria? That's right. Yes. Okay. I'm not going to turn that way because I'll be have my back to you, but we'll be face to face all the same. Oh, it's a lot being up here. <laughs> Person again. Oh, I think I just wanted to see everybody. <laughs> Wonderful, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I didn't think we'd have this chance again. Yeah. Um, I was really moved by when you spoke about it. I don't know if this was your poetic creation, but when you, when you spoke about it as a mala mm -hmm. um, and the Dharma as the thread, I just, that sunk in in such a deep way. Um, yeah. I think I just wanted to say thank you for that. Because <laughs> it, 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 you wove it together in a way that I hadn't quite um, felt that deeply. Yeah. So my, my sense is out of all of the people who have practiced and taught, they're like that pile of rocks. You might notice that one is a, you know, a standout or some, uh, you know, and they get woven into them this list of Buddhist ancestors. They're not necessarily in the linear sequence in the ways that they appear to be. Mm -hmm. but, um, but there's that sense of uh, that connection mm -hmm. and just representing that connection. It's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's quite dear to be, you know, in that company. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. It's an interesting image as well because I've done a lot of prayer with Mala, mm -hmm. and um, so thinking of each one of those beads as a as an ancestor, as a teacher, as a mm -hmm. person, and offering that. Uh, devotional. I, I was just really heartened by the mm -hmm. devotional aspect. Yeah. You know that speaks to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> that crystallized wisdom, mm -hmm. that ancestor, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I think that's Yeah. So leading into Dharma transmission, of course, you may remember, um, you know, when people were helping me here when I was doing that, um, saying the ancestors and ringing the bell and offering incense and bowing. Uh, for each ancestor, you know, um, and then in the evening I was doing women ancestors because they weren't actually part of what I was supposed to be doing uh, as part of the, the, those ceremonies. But but now we've completely incorporated the women ancestors, so 
Um, so poor Flint, he really had hundreds of boughs. <laughs> <laughs> I could at least spread them out, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, but there's you got something in your body doing that practice. Mm -hmm. um, you just get this deep, deep sense of connectedness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the same way that you know using a mala um, gives you that sense of connection. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you for being here. Yeah, of course. Of course, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, see everybody, real faces in person. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. feel good to be here after over two years. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I was really struck by your talking about how the ancestors pass things down to us and comparing that to how familial mm -hmm. members pass things mm -hmm. down. <clears throat> and I've been working um, on a part that's been very painful and uh, had an awareness today that it was generational. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to ask you about was working with a part that you know is generational. That is it's carrying legacy karma. How, how do you approach that? Is it different than working with a part that is broken off from your yeah. original? Um, I, for me, it's like all what the parts really want is a recognition of their struggle, their fears, how hard things have been for them, how much they don't want to do the things that they don't want to do, um, how, how much they're trying to help you. So there's a sense in which the legacy karma is a form of wisdom that the part is trying to carry. Okay, I'm not sure I understand that. Because that sounds almost positive. But it, this is a very negative. That's right. And that part is carrying it. Okay. Um, and it's carrying it partly as a reminder, you know, mm -hmm. never to forget this. Mm. You know, it's worried that you might forget. Oh, gosh, that makes so much sense in context with what's happening. That is so, right. makes so much sense. And oftentimes they're protective. Mm -hmm. That you know, because they're carrying that karma, they're trying to protect you from propagating it or from mm -hmm. you know um, continuing to experience. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and the other parts cannot understand it because it's not arisen in your own experience. It's legacy right. karma. So um, families of Holocaust survivors, for example, they're carrying legacy karma, um, and that karma um, plays itself out in different ways. So um, Vicki Austin, who's uh, helped us with Dharma transmission. Mm -hmm. Both of her parents were Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. And she, she described the way they, how, how they were um, constructing their reality, mm -hmm. that everything could be taken away from you any minute, you know, that you had to be prepared to leave at a moment's notice with nothing. Right. Um, and how that inflected her childhood. 
right? Right, right. So, um, so that it was very um, powerful, you know, talking about how that she still got it in her body, right? Right. Even though it wasn't her trauma, right? It's legacy trauma. And so, even though you you can feel that trauma and know that it is carried inside you, addressing it is the same way as with any other part. Acknowledging yeah. it is there. Yeah. Welcoming it. Yeah. Into your life. Yeah. And and saying you don't have to be an exile. Right. You don't have to be alone. Okay. Right. That's very helpful. Yeah. So then there there's it's not like that karmic burden goes away. It's but it's not held in isolation by a part that's you know scared right. and alone in it. Right. It's no longer exiled. That's right. It's no longer exiled. Okay. And then it's sort of welcomed into the system. The other parts. Um, the same way if you had a child who had some kind of trauma, mm -hmm. you know, in a family, the way the family would wrap right. itself around that child, right? That's very, very helpful. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You. Legacy karma from our families, but also from our culture, um, from our history. <clears throat> we're, we're all carrying legacy karma. The, karma, the legacy karma of racism, of materialism, of, you know, we, we carry that. And mm -hmm. some of it we participate in unconsciously, right? Because we, we don't understand its mechanisms very well. Right. And oftentimes we haven't really addressed that legacy karma in ourselves. Yeah. But this is where um, something like internal family systems and our practice come together, right? It's right there. When we, uh, when we sit in Zazen, we open a big space and we're inviting um, whatever needs to be met to come forward. So oftentimes we're rattled by what that is. <laughs> we really don't want to see it. But that's what um, that's actually our good fortune because those are the things that have been hidden or haven't been met before. And so they um, they they too have some hope of freedom. Um, and you know, and oftentimes we're like, no, get out. <laughs> I'm busy meditating. Can't you see that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, the capacity to welcome all of that um, and to understand, oh, this is, it's really important, as you pointed out, to understand the distinction between self-created conditioning, what we've actually built out of, of our own experience, and legacy karma that comes from outside, um, but that we carry all the same. It's important to be able to make that distinction because you're not trying to remedy something that can't be remedied in the past, right? So we can't. There's nothing we can do personally and individually about the fact that our culture engaged in lynching, right? We're not lynching anybody personally. And so there's like, we can't get a better past. We have to figure out how to go forward um, with the karma that we're carrying and how to resolve that. Yeah. So sometimes it's helpful to ask those parts that are carrying legacy karma. What do you think you need to feel content. And they've never thought in that way before. So often it's a very confusing question for them. No, it doesn't. Been trying to survive. Yes. And it doesn't particularly want you to feel content because that's dangerous. Right. Yeah. Oftentimes. So yeah. Yeah. So this is something we struggle with is, you know, the legacy karma we're carrying. And we sit so that we have a clear space meet everything and not be shaken by it. Yeah. Right?
Yeah, we have Rosemary from the online. Rosemary. There we go. Now you're spotlighted. Hi, uh, Peg and everyone. Um, Peg, um, what, as you um, uh, worked with, um, with Flint to, um, through the ceremonies and providing, uh, is giving the right term for the transmission, giving Dharma transmission? Well, it's kind of, yes. Kind of. Um, what, um, how did it compare with your process of receiving, of going through your ceremonies and your process of receiving Dharma transmission? And when you were, um, Going through this with Flint, what did it bring up for you um, in terms of your own process of receiving Dharma Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's a very interesting question because um, it was a thousand times more intimate because Flint and I have a 20 year history of teaching together and working together and practicing together. And so it was much, much more intimate because I just didn't have that history with Kosho. So, uh, so from that standpoint, it was, you know, far more profound and I felt, um, the circular nature of it. So, um, when I first did Jukai, uh, Flint had just been ordained as a priest, basically. Then he ordained me together with Barbara Cohn and then he gave me lay entrustment and then I gave him Dharma transmission. It's just a Dharma wheel, right? And so, um, so there was that sense that I didn't have in receiving Dharma transmission with Kosho. Kosho was very dear and he was very sweet and he was very kind to be willing to do it because I was not within the institutional context of formal Japanese traditional model, right? So that was a, a very great kindness. Um, with Flint, it was like uh, a writing of something that was incomplete in the universe. So something, so there was an imbalance and something was incomplete. So it was completing that. Um, and that, so there was that sense of sort of restoring the right order of the universe. Um, so, so that was quite different. Um, I was also uh, at the same time uh, being an, a kind of uh, host. So travel arrangements, uh, cooking meals, things like that. Uh, that ordinarily would not be part of my role. <laughs> and stealing out to like play with my dog next door with her boyfriend. <laughs> that would not ordinarily in temple life be working out like that. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a very, very deep and profound and meaningful pleasure um, to be engaged in that activity um, much of my mind was preoccupied with arrangements because out of the 10 ceremonies we had in one week, each one required a different room set up. Each one required a different set of things, you know, supplies. Um, and what happened in a different place? One of them happened in a red tent on my deck in a howling gale. So, <laughs> and that was the most, probably the most formal of the 10 ceremonies and the longest, and it was 38 degrees. So that was cold and windy, <laughs> but it felt um, somehow like big Dharma, right? 
And so, so yeah, so it was very, very different, very much deeper, more profound, more meaningful, more intimate, um, and more, uh, I would say, corrective <laughs> of something that had that was out of balance. And I, you know, and right the first time we were going to try and do it, COVID struck. The second time we were going to try and do it, Omicron struck. We get up to this point and there's a war in Ukraine. Yeah. Are we going to be exchanging nuclear weapons? I said, you better get here in a hurry and do this because I am not going through another lifetime to get to this point. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's a sort of informal way to put it. But, but basically, uh, my, my sense was there's a sense of urgency about completing this so that things are restored to the it's like after you've had a party or something and you have to get everything put away, you know, and then there's those last few things and you're like, no, no, this I'm not going to bed until this gets put away. You know? <laughs> sort of like that. I'm not going to bed until this gets done. <laughs> so does that answer your question at all? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Of course. <laughs> Opportunities, and it's been so long, and it's so glad you're here. Um, let's see what I want to talk about. When you're talking about lineage, mm -hmm. uh, immediately uh, the image of a tree came into mind. Mm -hmm. The roots and the different lineages that are in my life, how the tree, it all comes into the tree and then it goes out in the branches. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to think about it. Um, because even those things that are dark, you know, from our families or lineages, in a way that that's right. Um, even if it's it, even if your thought is this is a way I will never be. Yeah. Right. It's it's sort of definitional in a way. Right. Yeah. And. Um, and there are a lot of interlinks between these formal images mm -hmm. that uh, are linear, but not, that are web-like. Web-like, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Your work with Tai Chi, for example. Well, the whole Taoist lineage. Yes, of course. Which is interlinked with deeply, Shannon's. Yeah, yeah de deeply. Um, and, uh, and of course, you and, you and Flint are, as far as I'm concerned, part of my lineage, mm -hmm. uh, personally, um, as teachers, so they're yeah. plugged in. <laughs> yeah, and you can see how circular it is, how we inform each other, right? Yeah. 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 I will say it's, um, it's the students who make the teacher. Um, <laughs> As you know, from your own teaching, right? It's the students who bring forth the teachings. Um, otherwise, there's no occasion or opportunity for that. I was told my students that they were the teachers because they knew they had the questions. Yes. And 
I was supposed to know the answers because as a student, I was supposed to know the answers. <laughs> <laughs> Which I didn't always know. <laughs> No, but then it's improvisational, right? Right. Yeah. Or you go back to study. Or you go back to study. That's right. Drives you back to study. But yeah, it's it's what really deepens our practice. I think is when we begin offering it to others. Yeah, I do too. You I just go deeper. Essential. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what you know until you start. Until <laughs> somebody asks you what you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's why our inquiry together is so important because it brings forth. What we don't even know we know together. Yeah. Right? That we can only really know in the meeting. Yeah. Whereas the, the two Buddhas speaking is where the, yeah. the Dharma is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So thank you for recognizing that in such beautiful metaphors. Thank you. We're all part of the lineage of all beings, um, but the concept of, of lineage as a thing um, was not a part of the Indian tradition of Buddhism, right? Not so important until you get to China. And when the teachings came to China, China had ancestor worship as part of the tradition there. And so um, in order for Buddhism to have credibility, they had to provide a some sort of alternate lineage that people could embrace as they became Buddhists. And that's really where the concept of Zen ancestors really started <clears throat> constructed, crafted. Yeah. In, in China, people would take their fiance out to the graveyard, introduce to the grandmother, you know, and it was as though the ancestors were still walking among them um, and still, still right there. So it was very important to um, establish a sense of lineage uh, there, because it was very important there. And then as it spread, of course, Japan took much of its sort of cultural construction from the Japanese, I mean, from the Chinese. And that, um, that was part of what came right along. Yeah. So, but, but I think for those of us in our society, we often feel so disconnected you know, we're not, uh, we have these nuclear families, which is a good way to think about it because sometimes they blow up, you know. Um, <laughs> spread a lot of radioactivity. <laughs> so, you know, we're, uh, we're kind of a fragmented society. And so the notion of Sangha and the notion of lineage, I think helps weave our our sense of connection, our feeling of connection, our feeling of the way that we belong to each other and the way that we belong to our tradition. Um, even if we don't um, uh, practice it in that formal Japanese structure, for example, um, we have that connection, that heart connection. And that's why it was really important, even though we are you know, a contemporary center and we don't follow the Japanese uh, forms of you know, social structures, um, I, fe I felt it was very important, and Flint felt it was very important to have our roots deepen, as you were talking about, deepen these wisdom tradition that we trained in. So, so it's not something superficial. So, yeah, come on up. I, I have two very short questions, but 
my, I'm curious, so it's good to be with all of you. This is really special to be back here, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I've hesitated to come until now, but my questions are, um, I know that there were people who were studying the precepts online, I thought, mm -hmm. and so were they part of the Jukai ceremony or only if you sew them? Only if you sew a rakasu. Okay. That's... Yeah. The rakasu actually um, is like a legal document. Okay. It says you've officially taken the precepts. This one is uh, one that Flint and I did. We, we did identical rakasus for each other, okay. and he did some of the lettering on mine. I did some of the lettering on his, so they're really joint efforts. Okay. But in general, it gives the date of your um, Jukai ceremony. Mm -hmm. So it sort of uh, is all of these documents in, uh, in this tradition are on silk. Mm -hmm. So we had big, big, big documents that had to be completed on silk, and they were very detailed. So <laughs> that's what took us all week, basically. Right. And my other question was then, um, was there any sort of photographic record? I mean, I know years ago when uh, Cassie photographed some mm -hmm. ceremony that, mm -hmm. that Flint went through, and so I didn't know, aside from the photo that you sent to us online with the three pictures, there was... There's that's a strictly thing. private ceremony. So it's totally private, yeah, but I didn't know it was private. Yeah, that was, that was after the, all the ceremonies were over. Mm -hmm. I said, let's get one picture to send to the Sangha. Mm -hmm. You know, otherwise there would have been nothing. Mm -hmm. um, well, thank you. Yeah. 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 yeah, well, it was pretty hard. I mean, we, we, didn't, we weren't really set up for it. We didn't have a tripod. I had a ring light, but it didn't have a phone mount. We taped it you know, to, to the ring light. You know, <laughs> we put on a timer. You know, it was backlit. There were a lot of issues. <laughs> all in all, it was very nice yeah. to see. And yeah, was... and I have some pictures from the Jukai um, just at the end, you know, mm -hmm. just with the participants I'll send along. But it was really sweet, yeah. 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 Well, I just want to express my gratitude to, to Kim and all the others who were getting things set up for this morning and, and yeah. for Maria. So yeah, and for the talk on Sunday. So I'm very grateful. Okay. Yeah, the people are. Thank you. I'm rallying around for that. We have Eileen. Oh, it's... okay. Great. Yeah, Eileen. Yeah, ready. <laughs> how wonderful to see you, Eileen. No, well, that's what I wanted to say is how wonderful to see all of you. Uh, and also to be able to chant along with all of your voices at one time was the most wondrous, wondrous gift today. I, w I wanted to thank all of you for that. And I know I'm not alone. I mean, everybody that's online, I think, feels the same way. And so it's so great to see you, Peg, and to be transported back. You, it's so wonderful to know that you can always, always come home, you can always go where your heart takes you. And I'm not sure I would have believed it until I witnessed it like this after all these years. So thanks to all of you, my, my heart is full. <laughs> thanks, Eileen. Yeah, some of you may not know that Eileen practiced with us before she moved. Yeah. And so it was so um, great to uh, reconnect through open door sangha you know and and see that we could maintain our our wonderful connection with her yeah. mm -hmm. well that's a quick question too okay 
question is, do you really think it's any different with any kind of teaching, this warm hand to warm hand? I mean, certainly with art, it seems the same. But I don't know with you taught a lot of students in your yeah, area. And, um, and of course, I had very good, close relationships with them, but it wasn't like this. Um, partly because it wasn't, uh, I wasn't conveying the Dharma. I was teaching writing. I was teaching, you know, information architecture. I was teaching social ecologies. I was teaching topics. And I was teaching them to people who didn't have necessarily have a practice or a path or a vow. So for me, that's what, um, that's the distinction in what we're doing, practice, path, and vow. So- Well, maybe it's more common in art than in- Depends. It depends. Um, not, not everybody has a vow inside them that they've accessed, right? And, um, and so you'll find things where there's a practice and a vow. So Martin Luther King Jr. practices acts of civil disobedience and this vow, right? I have a dream vow. So, and in some cases, so for some people, there's a, or for some organizations or groups or whatever, there's a path and a practice, but there's no vow. So what distinguishes this kind of spiritual community to me is those three things are present. Practice, path, and vow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're at the end of our time, sadly. We'd love to go on and on, but um, I think we, we should conclude and we'll have our, our final chant, right? Caught in self-centered dream, only suffering, only self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life is this. The only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's right. Caught in self-centered dream, only suffering, holding self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's right. Caught in self-centered dream, only suffering, Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's play. Thank you, everybody, and thank you for joining us online. It's uh, just a, a such a pleasure that we can do this all together. Thank you so much, Peg, and thank you everybody in the Zendo and online. And, uh, and if you'd like to make a contribution to Apamada, then please do. I, if you're in the Zendo, I believe there's a place in the kitchen, Peg, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm amazed that you know that, Maria. <laughs> I was admiring it today. I was thinking, that was a good thing. <laughs> And if you're not in the Zendo and you're online, then please do go to apamada.org forward slash contribute, where you'll see an opportunity to contribute to teachers such as Peg and Flint, and also to all the wonderful and trusted teachers that we have. 
and uh, and to any other events and please do take a look at the calendar because there is some wonderful events on there that you can all you're all welcome to take part in and if you'd like to continue to meet and share then please do go into gallery view stay right where you are and join myself and others um, on the virtual porch for a further 30 minutes thank you all so much thank you peg thank you thank, thank you, you thank you